Male Spouse. I'm your host, Elizabeth Smith. I had the chance to talk to Poppy this week. She is an Australian-born American military spouse who is currently living overseas in England. We talk about uh, truly more than I could have ever imagined, and we had so much fun doing it. Unless you are a foreign spouse yourself, I don't imagine there's any chance that you'll guess all the places that this conversation heads, but I really loved hearing from Poppy and getting the perspective of someone who got married perhaps a little bit later than the average military spouse and also what it was like to go from being such an extremely independent person to adapting to this life where she's sort of subject to the whims of her husband's career. So we talk about all sorts of great stuff, funny stuff, interesting stuff. I know you're going to love it. So let's get started. Hi, my name is Poppy. Uh, I'm 38. I'm an Australian and I've lived all over the world as an adult and I'm currently living in England with my husband. My husband is a pilot based out of RAF Lakenheath and we've been here at Lakenheath for about four years. So this is our fourth year at Lakenheath and we'll be leaving next year. And can you tell me more about all the places that you've been prior to this? Uh, I've lived all over the world as has my husband separately. I've been, I've stayed in the Netherlands, uh, in the US, in Australia, where I'm from originally, and England prior to this, I've, I've traveled pretty extensively. My husband was formerly, uh, he's prior enlisted, so this is his 15th year in the Air Force, but his fifth year in, uh, as, a, as a fighter pilot. Prior to becoming a fighter pilot, he was actually a helicopter flight engineer on the UH-60s, which is the Huey, and he was stationed out of Yokota in Japan, uh, which is, uh, we met through mutual helicopter friends when uh, he was stationed in Japan. Okay. Were you in Japan at the same time? No, no. We actually just had some mutual friends and we were, I I was traveling through, so. Oh, wow. So did you just do long distance for a long time then? Yeah, we we basically... uh, Uh, We had on and off kept in touch by email and I hadn't heard from him in probably five years and I was randomly going through my junk mail in my email and came across an email from him that he'd sent about three or four weeks prior Um, and he had just gone to my junk mail and I sat on it for a couple of weeks and then I replied to it Um, and the rest is history. Wow. Yeah. So did you move near him then or no so we actually he was he he had just moved to uh lake and he okay um, he had just come out of b course and been stationed at lake and heath and so we did long distance from australia i flew out every two months for eight months before wow. he deployed <laughs> um it was an interesting eight months um having to like fly backwards and forwards between australia but it was definitely worth it uh, and then we made the decision in March, uh, just before he deployed, that we would get married. And he deployed and I moved over in the June of 2018. And then we were married in the December of 2018 in okay. Cambridge. Just had a, like an intimate dinner with about 35 people. So we had friends and uh, people from the squadron. It was really lovely. That's really neat. What did it take to all that go from sort of being terrible at keeping in touch? And then all of a sudden you're flying back and forth. So did you just, 
finally that connection was there? Uh, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, we, he had grown up a lot. Okay. He was a lot younger when we met. Uh, sure. He was in his early 20s and he was now in, in his 30s. And that was definitely apparent when we were chatting this time around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I, I was in a different stage as well of my life the last time I I was I spoke to him I was in a completely different phase of my life I was still very focused on my career mm-hmm. and establishing myself in my career and I didn't really feel like I had a lot of time for anyone really so sure that makes sense and what's that been like you moved over you know we moved to him became a military spouse became a a foreign military spouse of an American pilot living in another country. <laughs> what has that experience been like? Uh, it's been it's been a learning curve for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had prior exposure to the military and also working in aviation myself. I thought I would have a better grasp of what it would be like to be a spouse. Mm-hmm. And I really had no clue <laughs> after <laughs> I... After I um, I was welcomed into the military spouse life. I realized that I really didn't know much at all. And I feel like I'm really fortunate to have had some amazing key spouses and some amazing squadron leadership who Mm -hmm. really shown me what it is to be a good leader um, and how to be a good military spouse as well. Mm -hmm. What did you think it would be like? I had had a lot of... uh, I guess, preconceived ideas that it would be a little bit like the Stepford Wives. Okay. <laughs> um, sure. And I, I guess as well, because I'm, uh, I look a little different. I'm, I've got tattoos and I've got, uh, I've got piercings and I'm, I'm not quite, I don't quite fit the mold of what uh, I thought a military spouse should look like. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, I had a lot of hesitancy, I guess, about actually immersing myself in the life um, and being part of the squadron. I'd never been a part of any other partner's work before. It's it's a very unique thing to to be so immersed in your partner's work and know everyone at their work and go to their workplace all the time. I couldn't think off the top of my head of any of my ex-partners work colleagues names at all but I could tell you all of my husband's and all of their names are completely ridiculous yeah 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 I think that that's that's so true in such an excellent way of putting it because it is of course at the end of the day it's it's their work and I think that a lot of them struggle with that balance too of it being your work versus your life because it also dictates a large part of your life, a large part of the big life decisions are dictated by their work. So. Yeah. I'd never, I'd never really had that before. I mm-hmm. mean, I've, I've always been the master of my own destiny. Like I've always decided where I'm going to work, what I'm going to do, what country I'm going to live in, what city I'm going to live in. And if I didn't like where I was, I could move myself. And I did. And that's been a big thing as well I've suddenly become really invested in our VML process and where we're going to be going in the next assignment whereas normally that that wasn't a thing that I've had to think about as well um so it's been it's been interesting Mm -hmm. 
I think that's especially unique in your case because certainly not everyone, but many military families are married on the younger side. And I think a lot of times because of the nature of the lifestyle and the fact that they're going to war, they're moving across the country or whatever the case may be, but to have already had so much of that freedom first and to have had the opportunity to say, I'm here as long as I want to be. And when I'm ready to be done, I can be done is such a dramatic opposition to what you're now, (laughs) what you're now a part of. It really is. I mean, honestly, I thought I was going to be Bridget Jones and never get married and be eaten by Alsatians at 80. (laughs) So, yeah, in giant underwear. So, you know, like uh, for me, even uh, getting married, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I got married at 35 or 34 Mm -hmm. and a half, I'll say. I'll claim 34 and a half. You know, like I got married really late uh, in life for, uh, you know, Americans. Mm -hmm. Um, Americans do get married a lot younger than Australians. Uh, and then I have suddenly like moved to another country and I'm not working as much as what I would do in Australia. Like I was working 70 hour weeks in Australia mm. in my role and suddenly I wasn't working. And that was a big, huge um, adjustment for me. I had worked so hard to get to where I was professionally that all of a sudden I, I kind of lost a little bit of my own self-worth, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. That was, a, that was a big, like a big thing. That was a big adjustment uh, when I first, probably the first six months was really a big adjustment moving over. And I really had to find my sense of self and identity again, because um, mm-hmm. I'd placed a lot of that in what I did professionally. And can you tell me more about what you did? So I am a, uh, a rescue swimmer and flight paramedic. So I, I specialize in open ocean rescue and swift water rescue. And I work search and rescue and helicopters normally when I'm not in England. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping uh, once we go back to the US, I'm hoping to go back and uh, work for a helicopter service in the US um, okay. as a flight paramedic. If I'm not able to do that uh, wherever we're stationed, because it'll be dependent on where we go, um, I, I can fall back. I've got another um, qualification as a technical writer and instructional designer, which is what I did prior wow. to becoming a flight paramedic. So I've kind of got a few different things I can fall back on, you know, if I, I don't do that wherever yeah. we go. So those seem very different. So what prompted you to become a flight paramedic? <laughs> Um, actually, I just wanted to be a paramedic when I first started looking at what I wanted to do. Uh, while I was working, I was working in the mining and oil and gas industry as an instructional designer uh, and um, technical writer. And whilst it was uh, really financially rewarding, it wasn't mentally rewarding for me. And I had always had an interest in medicine Um, I come from a long line of nurses three of my aunts are nurses um, on my mum's side and so I guess I'd always kind of thought maybe I could do that I didn't want to go into nursing uh, because I I don't know I guess I I thought that it might be a little bit emotionally taxing for me so I I thought I'd become a paramedic and that wouldn't be little did I know uh, that it's (laughs) definitely not that kept not that way 
so I decided uh, to study. So I worked full time as an instructional designer and study to be a medic in my spare time. Uh, wow. And then I think I was doing a um, some placements and a helicopter landed at the hospital and I, it suddenly dawned on me uh, that I could work in aviation and work as a paramedic and that was how I kind of got set on that trajectory. I've always I've been interested in aviation. Uh, I wanted to be a pilot from the time I was six. My um, dad took me on a flight from Brisbane to Sydney. It's about 45 minutes to an hour flight, but it was my first time in an aeroplane. And I said to him that I wanted to be a flight attendant because I thought that their job was so glamorous and so amazing. And my dad actually said to me, why would you want to be a flight attendant when you could fly the plane? And that was how I sort of fell in love with flying and wanted to become a pilot. So I spent a lot of my teenage years or my early teenage years, my tweens, just reading all everything I could about aviation and embracing that kind of like aviation like nerdiness um mm-hmm. and then uh I I joined cadets at 13 and I started flying at 15 and um, I was awarded a scholarship in that same year uh to get my both my private license and my commercial license so uh and then I worked through that and I, I gained my commercial license at 19. Wow. So I always really loved flying it's a really hard industry to get into in Australia. Unfortunately, um, the Australian Air Force uh, is very competitive uh, to get in as a pilot and the slots are, are really small. I think they take like a handful of people every year for pilot spots. So I was not smart enough to, to join as a pilot uh, in the Air Force. So I left that and uh, kind of... <sighs> flitted around to other things for a little while and I was an instructional designer. Um, I did that for a few years, worked in in underground mining, uh, worked in oil and gas as an instructional designer. I was designing uh, courses for um, safety and environment. We did a defence contract as well, uh, doing some e-learning on that and I just decided that I was bored and I didn't want to do it anymore even though it paid really well mm-hmm. and then started studying so very neat you mentioned that you were able to get your commercial flying license at the same time so is that does that mean the same thing as it does in the states as far as could you have gone to fly for a commercial airline at that point yeah I could have um I think at the time it meant uh so in Australia when you um become a pilot uh, and you get your commercial license, you have to go out and do bush time, uh, or what they call bush time, which is basically rural and remote flying, which is remote in Australia is is really remote. Right. Um, you're flying out to Aboriginal communities out in the Western Desert or on the Tanami Track or, you know, and flying out to places in tiny little aircraft, um, delivering mail and delivering food and you know, shuttling people backwards and forwards between like smaller cities um, and capital cities. So you have to go out and do a lot of your bush time uh, and it's dangerous and it's hot. There's, you don't always work in the safest conditions and you don't get paid very much either. So 
uh, I didn't really want to go and do that bush time. Uh, the other option was to go to Papua New Guinea and do bush time up there. And Papua New Guinea is one of the most dangerous places to fly uh, in the world. I, mm-hmm. I know three of my friends who I was learning to fly with have all had serious accidents out of Papua New Guinea. So um, flying is doing their bush time. And then you come back from doing your bush time once you've got enough hours uh, and you can apply for the two airlines that operate in Australia. I think it's down to one at the moment because I think Virgin uh, has folded. So then you apply for one of the regional jobs and you may get a job working for Qantas or working for Virgin back in the day. Uh, And then you would work the regional routes for years and years until Mm. you'd have to work your way up to the next role um, and hopefully maybe one day get a job doing long haul overseas. Uh, So it was really hard to get into and it took a lot of time and it didn't pay well and it it just at that time in my life I guess I had a lot of student debt and I needed to I needed to pay that off as well so I was like it wasn't something that I thought that I could pursue as a job realistically and financially so mm. I hate because I would have loved to have done that as a job it just unfortunately wasn't how it was going to be sure and you mentioned a little bit before about the the glass ceiling in Australia. What was your experience there and what sort of, what caused you to bump up against that, I, would, I suppose I would say? Um, it's, it's, we in Australia, and I, I love Australia. I love my, the country that I'm, I'm born in. It'll always be my home. But unfortunately, we have some really outdated uh, gender stereotypes it's been highlighted recently in the news um, in Australia of just how outdated they are. And unfortunately, that that was back in the day extending into the workplace. And it, when I decided um, after, you know, studying to become a medic and gaining those qualifications, when I decided that I wanted to be a flight paramedic, it is such a small industry, the, the HEMS industry in Australia and the search and rescue industry, that most people stay there until they die. And mm. most of those guys are men and they're upwards of 40, 40 years plus. So they don't want to work with young women um, and they don't want to hire young women um, because they don't feel that they can do the job. It's it's not something that I've, I'm, we're not encouraged to talk about it either uh, in Australia. So like right now, I actually feel really uncomfortable talking about it because it's, um, I feel like I'm, I'm being disparaging to the industry, but I'm, I'm not. Mm. I, I think it's, it's probably, it's, you know, it's 2021. We need to talk about these things. Mm. The, the glass ceiling, I guess, that I faced was that, I just was not getting any experience. I couldn't even get a foot in the door. I couldn't even get an internship. Um, I couldn't even, you know, have a mentor even who was willing to mentor me and guide me into the right direction of what I needed to do because I I didn't have the experience. I just kept coming back to you don't have the experience. Mm -hmm. You don't have the experience. So I decided to, to do an internship which was unpaid, uh, 
for six months um, and I traveled to the States and did that in North Carolina and got some experience, uh, made some amazing friends, made some amazing contacts while I was there. Uh, and when I came back, I was able to utilize that experience as and to basically beg, <laughs> beg for a job um, or just for a foot in the door um, of, of uh, a position. And I was lucky that someone gave me a chance. And when they did give me a chance, I was told that, you know, uh, we don't know how this is going to go because we've never had a female in this role. Wow. So it it was uh, hard, I guess. Some people at the time said things that weren't true. You know, like I applied for the role and was given it at the same time that someone else applied for the role and I it was basically implied that I had slept with someone to get that job, So, which wasn't the case at all. But those are the outdated gender stereotypes that still existed. Um, and so basically to, to counteract that, I had to prove myself and I had to work hard and I had to be one of the boys and I had to laugh at the jokes and I had to just get on with it, um, even if at times I felt uncomfortable and or annoyed or frustrated um, mm -hmm. and you know, like I'm, I feel very lucky to have been given that chance because I know so many weren't back then. Mm -hmm. uh, it's changing now, which is really good. There are more female flight paramedics uh, and there's starting to be more female rescue swimmers as well. That's good. I'm, I'm certainly glad you had the opportunity. And from my perspective, it honestly makes me feel sort of sad to hear you say that you feel lucky to have been given it. And I understand what you're saying, but I also think it just stinks that you had to, you know, bust your ass for lack of a better term and go through so many hoops to earn something that you yeah. were certainly I, I, qualified for. I literally had to leave the country and spend $50,000 of my own money, self-funding an internship to come back and get a job that I was lucky to get. Right, so, right. You know, like, and, I, and I, I do feel lucky, but at the same time, I know how hard I worked mm -hmm. to get there and how, how much of a sacrifice I had to make yeah. to get there. And, and I guess it takes pe like people like myself um, and others who have really kind of fought to get into these positions. Mm -hmm to pave the way for future generations and for also for young girls to see women working in these roles and going, Hey, well, if she can do it, I can do it. Without a doubt. I think that's incredibly important. And I think that representation is huge. I think that that's something just having little girls now, I, the things that I'll walk through, walk through the stores and see, you know, just the different ways that things are represented and, what a huge deal it is to see people, to see women, to see people that look like them doing, doing everything, you know, making it work like you did. I think that's amazing. And it's, like I said, I think it's, it's unfortunate that you did have to go through those hoops that you had to do all of that on your own dime. That's crazy to me, but at the same time, making it work. I mean, 
all the all the credit to you. It's amazing. I think I credit actually. I'm I'm not my father and I don't have a relationship now, but I was raised by my father he was a single father um and I credit him with that determination that I had Mm -hmm. because he had conversations with me as a young girl that were basically along the lines of well just because a boy does it doesn't mean you can't do it too Mm -hmm. you know like I wanted to ride motorbikes when I was young like dirt bikes and he was like fine you can ride a dirt bike you can Mm-hmm. You can do it just because a boy does it doesn't mean that you can't do it. Right. So, you know, like I learned to ride dirt bikes and I always, um, I was kind of into like more tomboyish stuff anyway as growing up, but he mm-hmm. always fostered that uh, and encouraged that lack of, I guess, gender stereotype um, right. and that, you know, you can do anything and it doesn't matter if you're a girl. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how quickly that stuff happens. And my little ones, like I said, are two and three and that they will say that's a boy toy or that, you know, just that it's like, how, how does that come about? Who, who told you that? Or how does this get ingrained? How do I undo that? How do you, how do you do exactly what you said and, and feel that you're just as entitled to be whatever you want to be and play with whatever you want to play with. And yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. And I mean, it just, I, I was just fortunate that I had had my dad there encouraging mm-hmm. me, you know, like my dad, funnily enough, my dad is actually terrified of flying and hates it, but encouraged me to take flying lessons and become a pilot. So wow. and yeah, like, you know, and really like encouraged my love of aviation, even though he was terrified of it. So, um, and always said, you know, like it, he was proud of me for doing it. That's great. And so you're you're not flying right now over in England, is that correct? No, so I'm not flying uh, at the moment. Um, I'm still it, like I still keep in touch with the search and rescue guys here. I've got we've got some really close friends who work in search and rescue uh, in Carnarvon, which is really good for me because I can still kind of keep my mind engaged in search and rescue. I can talk to them, talk to them, and they're my peers, um, and you know we talk about jobs and stuff that they're doing and I can kind of keep that momentum going so I don't Mm -hmm. feel like I'm stagnating I'm also trying to carry across all my um, qualifications and sort of convert them to my uh, to American qualifications at the moment so I'm, I'm studying some again some courses to to try and make sure that I'm ready when I go back to the states to just start working again mm-hmm. because I I do I miss working in emergency medicine uh it's been really hard the last 12 months um in the middle of a, a global pandemic to sit and not help and you know and to hear my how like the harrowing stories that some of my work colleagues have had to like to experience during uh, this pandemic as well Mm -hmm. and not feel like I'm doing my bit. So it's been hard, but it's been good in the sense that I still am able to talk to some, a lot of my peers and keep my head in the game as well. Sure. I would imagine as we sort of circled mentioned before coming to this new place and doing the whole spouse thing and not working, was that just a, a major identity shift for you and how have you if so kind of how have you dealt with that 
it 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 was huge it was a huge identity shift um like I said earlier I placed a lot of my identity and my self-worth in uh, Mm -hmm. what I did for a job and also how like how much I worked like I realized now I was just working ridiculous amounts of hours um to kind of prove myself to myself (laughs) and Mm -hmm. um I guess now I've I've had the opportunity to enjoy a little bit um not working Uh, I've worked since I was 15 you know I started working at a bakery after school and on the weekends and I basically worked straight up until you know right before I left and then all of a sudden I wasn't working and I was like a wife and I didn't really know what that was either. So I, you know, I've had to kind of find my feet and um, find my my space. And also, I was um, thrust into a, a life where, although, you know, I speak English, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm English is my first language. I'm, I, I'm from a country that's part of the Commonwealth, so part of the UK. But there are cultural differences and there are cultural differences as well with Americans. And so there's been an adjustment period for that as well. So I kind of had to find my identity within within my marriage and within the military spouse group and within like my life here in England as well. Right. So what have you learned about yourself having sort of stripped away the the work portion of the way that you identified um, I've probably, uh, I've learned to slow down a little bit. I've learned that this is just a season. Uh, it's not going to be forever. Um, and mm-hmm. that I'm actually contributing in other ways that I probably wouldn't have realized before. I'm able to really focus on supporting my husband and his role, which at the moment is really important to me. And also, I've had to, I guess, lean into learning how to be a military spouse and also putting myself in like kind of uncomfortable positions for me because although it may not seem to you, I'm actually a little bit introverted. I don't like big groups of people. Um, I don't like loud loud groups of people. I don't like Same. drunk loud groups of people and that's basically a fighter squadron. So, <laughs> um, you know, like it, it's, it's been an adjustment like to come into that and so I've I've had to learn you know like that it's okay to put yourself out there as well and kind of push myself a little bit outside of my comfort zone Mm -hmm. and utilize some of the skills that I had forgotten I had I do the newsletter for our squadron for the spouses um, which is a little bit of like I guess graphic design and instructional design work for me Mm -hmm. Um, I've just finished a deployment binder to help first-time deploying spouses and deployed spouses and in general um, to sort of work through the pre-deployment phase of before the guys leave. So, like, what you need to get ready and I guess, um, you know, like passwords and checklists for legal and all of those things. Mm -hmm. Because I found I bet that's that. an extremely appreciated resource for everyone there because that kind of thing can be really overwhelming. Yeah. And, and, and it was because, you know, we're, I'm on my third deployment in three years now. And when I first uh, was a new military spouse, my husband 
was deployed and I moved here and I didn't really know anything. And so a lot of the things that I've put into this new book and I've, you know, the resources that I've kind of pulled together have come from my experiences as a new military spouse. You know, I didn't realize that the, the reintegration issues and, you know, like the, the issues while they're deployed with communication and, you know, like, so I tried to include some, some articles and some things on those, that as well to try and help new spouses um, to not feel so alone, I guess, um, in this process because everyone kind of focuses on the active duty uh, person and, you know, them being so far from home, but they actually forget that we're also far from home and sitting in another country with our, our husband deployed and it may be someone's first time that they're deploying as well. So Right. And and currently in a pandemic, which does not help one bit yeah, either. So currently in a pandemic where we are not allowed to have anyone over to our, our homes. We've only just on Monday uh, been allowed to have to meet with six people in an outdoor setting. So for, I read an article the other day that it basically said that for 53% of the last 12 months in the United Kingdom, we have been in a full national lockdown. So that means no shops, no bars, no clubs, like not that I go clubbing, but nothing has been open other than grocery stores and petrol stations and hospitals. And wow. that we, you know, at the start of the pandemic, we couldn't even go outside for more than an hour a day. So mm. to kind of, uh, to have spouses who are um, at home with little kids as well, and who are also dealing with the pandemic and with their spouses deployed, um, I thought that this book would also help a little bit just to give them some structure as well yeah without a doubt and to go back to what you had mentioned a while back when you said that you sort of had almost a, a Stepford picture in mind of military spouses being immersed in it now especially having a, a crash course of sorts having done three deployments in three years what has changed about that perspective um, I think I've just, I've had to myself really lean in and get to know people um, a little bit because it was partly me making a judgment, I guess, before I, I really got to know these women that I was part of a group with. And it, it was probably, it wasn't even it didn't come from anywhere. It just, I guess there's this preconceived notion that you just have in your head of what you think an officer's wife should be. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I have quickly realised that we're all like amazing women thrown together in, in somewhat a difficult position mm -hmm. and making the best of it. Uh, and, you know, I have had the honour of meeting some really amazing women who I wouldn't have met normally in my social circles mm -hmm. who are have different opinions different lifestyles to me but who I get along with really well and like I think that's actually a really positive thing about being a military spouse is that you get to make friends with 
women and men um, who you wouldn't normally be friends with. Yes, without a doubt. And I think that sometimes there's, and I, and I, I could be speaking out of turn for other people's perspectives, but sometimes it's seen as if you are a military spouse, because of course there's all the sacrifice that comes with it, that therefore you must encompass this sort of blind obedience and devotion. And that you are like, you kind of mentioned like the Stepford wife, because, because otherwise, how would you do it is sort of the perspective from an outsider. How would you move all the time, deal with them gone, et cetera, et cetera, unless you didn't have your own dreams or you were completely fine doing whatever they wanted and all that sort of thing. And and I'm, again, not speaking to what your opinion is. I just think that that's, it's fair. I think for people to think that, to think, I can't imagine picking up my whole life whenever they told us we had to, and I can't imagine all these different things. And so that's been the case for me as well as, as you meet spouses and you see how different they all are and, and, it's been a huge growing experience for me as well as someone who also tends to be more comfortable solo learning how to appreciate these people with just completely different backgrounds, completely different views of the world and taking them exactly as they are. And then finding either what we have in common or even sometimes what can we, what we can discuss knowing we disagree on it, but doing so respectfully or just doing so from a place of learning I think it's, for me, that's one of the ways that makes all of this so much fun is learning about the differences in people. And I think for a long time, I always was, we'd move somewhere and I'm like, okay, who's like me? Who's the person who seems the most like me and yeah. who's who's going to mesh? Because again, you're also on a timeline, right? So you're like, yeah. it's a little bit of the speed dating. Yeah. So you're like, okay, who's going to be the best like coffee date right now? Who can we like trade babysitting? But there's also just something so cool about these people, you know, you and I talking right now, your life I is completely opposite <laughs> my having never lived outside the country life. And it's yeah. fascinating and it's interesting. And, and I hear you saying things that I agree with so much too. And we come from just completely different places and that's, what's cool about it. And it's also, I think, I think it takes time. I think it's hard to just dive in and be like, wow, look how diverse they are. Look how much they have to offer. I think it's really instinctive to sort of hop in and say, okay, where are my people? Where are the people I'm going to get along with? Where's my kind of safe space? Yeah. And it, 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 it takes a while. It definitely is like that. And I 100% agree with you. It's, it's taken me a while to find my people here. Um, I was really mm-hmm. fortunate uh, prior to moving here full time with my husband that I had an established friend group here and I'm actually really lucky that one of my oldest friends whom I've known for 10 plus years she actually just lives 45 minutes away so I've been I was really lucky to to have that but I have friends all over the UK and so I, I I wasn't I didn't feel as isolated when I first moved in the sense that I had a friendship group but I, I did feel isolated as a military spouse, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it took me time to, to really get to know people and get to know people that um, I wouldn't normally know or, or wouldn't mm-hmm. normally talk to because they, they weren't like me because I, I don't think you're going to find another Australian um, who's married <laughs> to an American at Lake and Heath, and if, if sure. ever, I'd probably run to them because I miss hearing the Australian accent. 
<laughs> you know, like I, I really, I, I guess, yeah, I just had to make the effort and really put, put myself outside of where I felt comfortable a lot. Mm-hmm. And like making friends in your 30s is hard as it is and like especially as a, a woman and that and that on top of being a new military spouse was also hard and different and also I'm I'm a little bit older than most of the girls um, in the squadron who are our first assignment most of them are in their early mid kind of 20s area mm. like up to 27 and I'm a good 10 years older than that so mm-hmm that that has been a little bit like um, I had to kind of understand that they were coming from a, a different generation almost mm-hmm. and you know like I had I, I had left school by the time these girls were being born <laughs> so some of them <laughs> well don't think about it that way <laughs> yeah so it's but in saying that the those girls I've learned stuff from them and you know they're all amazing women sure what do you feel like, and it, you know, it, you've mentioned you kind of take ownership for the way that you would maybe picture things, but what could people have done differently or what do you wish when you were brand new? As a foreign spouse or just as a spouse in general? Either one or both. I mean, there's not really anything. I, I feel like people are going to welcome you how they're going to welcome you. Mm-hmm. And there's not really much you can kind of do to change the way that they treat you um you just have Mm -hmm. to treat them the way that you want to be treated I guess like I think being a foreign spouse though there are some things that people or some things that uh people don't consider like when we're having discussions my first coffee that I attended or my spouse coffee that I attended was actually the last coffee before the guys got back from their deployment and so they were talking about returning, uh, what dates they were returning, and they kept talking about Columbus Day. And I had no clue when Columbus Day was. It's not a holiday we celebrate. And sure. so I, I, like, I sat there for a couple of minutes and I was like, I don't want to look like an idiot for asking, but also I really want to know what da- actual day this is because I don't know. And so I had to, put, had to push myself to put my hand up and go, mm-hmm when's Columbus Day mm-hmm. and it just wasn't and it wasn't something that they thought about and they were all everyone laughed and just went oh you know it's the 8th of October or something or whatever it was mm-hmm. for that year and it, it was a small thing but for me it was it was quite big because I was I, I felt silly a little bit right and it just I guess I, ha- I have to think about things as a, a, sp- a foreign spouse that sometimes American military spouses don't have to think about a lot of people also don't realize that I'm not automatically uh granted a green card because I'm married to my husband you know like it it they don't realize that I'm even an immigrant sometimes so there's sometimes some awkward conversations when people realize that I'm an immigrant or will be going through the immigrant process Mm -hmm. it's it's something that adds a little bit of extra stress to our lives at PCS time um, right. as a foreign spouse or an, a foreign alien, as we're known, which is great right. by the US government, <laughs> as a foreign alien applying for a green card. 
to mm-hmm. a US military member or married to a US military member. We go through the same process as anyone applying for a green card, except we're doing it in the middle of a PCS move OCONUS. Wow. So we have, not only do we have a huge PCS overseas going back to the States, we also have on top of that a massive amount of paperwork to do with immigration, immigrating to the States. Wow. To give you an idea, I have to uh, email every hospital that I've ever been in in Australia and request my hospital records. And we don't have a centralised system, so I have to email every hospital individually. And that, I think, at the moment, they're charging about $30 per record. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I've got about 12 hospitals that I need to contact and to get my health records, you know, and things like that. So it's there's a, a little bit of extra stuff we go through as uh, mm-hmm. foreign military spouses that I think people don't realise and we're not automatically granted waivers mm-hmm. because our partners are in the military. Okay, yeah. It's not just like, it's not a golden ticket of sorts that you're just kind of... No, it's, it's, it's not any different. It's funny because uh, when my husband and I got married or when we, we got engaged, actually, we actually had to fill out paperwork for my husband to request from his squadron commander permission for him to marry me and he had to sign it off and it included a I think I think this has changed now but at the time it had also included a medical and a a sexual health screening for syphilis and HIV that I'm pretty sure American spouses don't have to have uh, when they get married to their American partners. That all, that all of that package went to my husband's squadron commander to him to sign off. He actually didn't even realise he had to do that. Um, that was the first one wow. he had done. I think I have the letter somewhere because we just thought it was so ridiculous. But we, we actually had to have permission from his squadron commander to marry, so... Is there, do you know anything about any sort of present day purpose for that? Or is that just like some sort of archaic thing that's... I, I'm not sure if, I, I think you still have to get permission to marry. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you have to go through the health screening part of it still, but I think it's in, at a different step within the command sponsorship um, side mm-hmm. of it. But I think it is because they want to to potentially uh, counsel some members of the military prior to them potentially rushing into a marriage. Okay. Um, And they also want to check that whomever they're marrying doesn't have any communicable diseases. Um, And I guess that was, that was hard as well. Like I I felt quite uh, taken aback when I, we, we both did uh, when we realized that had to happen. It was also, I was still in Australia when we were filling out that paperwork. And so I was handed or I was emailed uh, a whole bunch of US Air Force military forms and told to go to a doctor in Australia and have them fill them out. I went through four doctors before who just point blank refused to fill it out because they didn't know what they were filling out or signing off on mm. before my husband uh, got in contact with a former flight doc of his who was stationed in Australia, he helped me fill out the forms and then we had an Australian Air Force doctor sign them off. But it was a process to get them done. That 
that is something else. I'll tell you. <laughs> I don't know if I quite have the words for that because I, like you said, is unless there's something that I signed completely blindly, I feel very, very confident that that does not happen. Yeah, as I, I think and, it's only for uh, yeah. foreign foreign aliens marrying American. Yeah, and and that there's certainly nothing done about people being married in haste if they're both in the United States. So that's also interesting to me. Yeah, I, I can't yeah. see any reason for it other than for them to check a or to make sure that the, the active duty member is, you know, marrying someone who's who's not of ill repute uh, and who doesn't have syphilis. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I guess those are, that's important. As long as, as long as those two boxes are, are yeah. checked, yeah, everything else is fine. And that's certainly not the most warm welcome either as you're preparing to leave your home country to embark on this wild adventure and your your passage to do so involves all of that. Yeah, I actually hadn't even met my husband's squadron commander at the time. He was lovely and I'm glad mm. that it, you know, like I had no problems with him seeing all of that paperwork. But it is pretty, pretty crazy to think that we had to get a letter and permission and that that with that letter was all of my medical history right (laughs) right gosh that's really wild to me that's just not ever something I've ever I'd ever heard about or considered and like you said when I picture meeting my husband's squadron commanders it's always you always want to make a nice first impression and as anyone does with anyone right but (laughs) yeah you don't want to say hi I'm poppy I don't have syphilis (laughs) <laughs> that's usually not part of my introduction yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm of good breeding and syphilis free that's me gosh I think there was a moment there as well it, it's totally irrational obviously getting ready to move overseas where I was trying to fill all these forms out with the doctor and and I was like having to have these tests done and I think for a good solid two hours I convinced myself I had syphilis like even though I knew I didn't I, I had convinced myself in my head I had it you know as a medical professional I knew I didn't have it but in my head I was like what if you did what if <laughs> I would have wanted to you marry did. my husband right <laughs> oh my gosh you poor thing what a mess yeah <sighs> well on that somewhat ridiculous note <laughs> I want to jump over to our rapid fire section so we make sure we have time for that these will be much easier than the questions you had to answer to uh, get married. So first one is sweet or savory? Savory. What would be your theme song? Ooh, Fly For Your Life by Gunship. Awesome. When is the last time that you did something for the first time? Um, yeah, I haven't done anything exciting in the last 12 months. Well, you survived a pandemic, so I did. I, I haven't. I haven't got COVID, so that's there. You go. Good. What has been your favorite place that you've ever lived? I would have to say the Netherlands. Uh, I lived in the the south of the Netherlands for a short time um, in a, a small town called Vissingen. It's it overlooks Belgium. It's about half an hour from the border of Belgium and France. Um, it's a beautiful little town that was really heavily occupied by the Germans in World War II. It was where the Royal Marines actually uh, liberated 
Poland uh, in World War II. Um, so I lived in a beautiful little house on the beach that had a German bunker in the backyard, which was really cool to, to, to live next to a part of history, I guess. I really loved living in that area and I, I think um, everyone sort of talks about the Netherlands like they, they talk about Amsterdam and what you can do in Amsterdam, which is ridiculous um, because Holland <laughs> is so much more than what you do in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it was just so close to France and the northern part of France is really beautiful as well um, and it's really close to Germany as well and Cologne, which is another one of my favourite cities. That sounds beautiful. Last one, what is your favourite form of self-care? Hmm, I'm trying to think of which what I do for self-care these days. Um, I think probably... Uh, my most treasured form of self-care is actually saying no. Uh, I am um, a, I am an Enneagram 2, so I'm a helper by nature um, and I tend to want to help as much as I can and I sometimes help too much or not. I, I do too much to the detriment of my own my own health and my own boundaries, I guess. So saying no mm-hmm. is my favorite form of self. That's excellent. Yes, I like that very much. And can you leave us with your favorite quote? Uh, sure. If you're always trying to be normal, you'll never know how amazing you can be. You've got to shine your weirdo light bright. Otherwise, the other weirdos won't know where to find you. I always warn my guests that we will most certainly veer off topic and I think that syphilis takes the cake as the most off topic that I've ever gone. Truly, I had so much fun talking to Poppy. I'm so thankful for her time, for her insight. She gave me so many good things to think about and I hope she did the same for all of you. Make sure to keep up with us on social media at The American Mill Spouse, where you can get info on new episodes, different things going on, and you can also learn how to share your story with us. I'll talk to you next week.